0: Thanks for listening to another Contemplate podcast brought to you by Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. Pastor David Robinson is our teacher, and today begins teaching us about unity in the church. Real unity is tough to make happen in pretty much any context, but can be especially tough in the church. Let's find out more. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and here's Pastor David.
1: Now this section is gonna just kind of talk about what was kind of more generally, just imagine they were kind of in close and now we're stepping back out to maybe a 30,000 foot view of the church and what's going on. So we're in chapter four, we're starting in verse 32 and we're gonna go through verse 35 if you have your Bible or your mobile device or whatever you've got it on or it'll be on the screen here. So this is what it says. It says, Now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace was upon them all nor was there any one among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles feet and they distributed to each as any one had need <clears throat> so as we've been going through Acts, we've talked a bunch of times about the fact that this is a history, and quite a specific history. Luke's given us names, he's given us dates, he's given us you know, places, and so he's got all this really specific stuff, and we've talked about how some of the things in Acts are just descriptive. They just describe what was happening, and some of the things in Acts are prescriptive. They're saying, this is how we ought to act. And we have to be very careful when we're reading through a book like Acts not to start taking the descriptive stuff and making it prescriptive. Right? You get into trouble doing that. So we have to be able to see what in here is descriptive and what in here is prescriptive. Okay? What are the things that we should take from this and do likewise? And what are the things we're just saying, hey, this is what happened? So in this passage that I just read you, there's some of both. There's a bit of both bit of descriptive, bit of prescriptive. And it's going to take us quite a while to go through the prescriptive side, but I can end for you any concern about the descriptive side here real quick. Acts uh, 4, 32-35 is not telling us that we should institute some sort of church communism. Okay? Breathe easy. I'm not going to ask all of you to go sell all your stuff and bring it to the church next week to give away. Okay? That's not what's going to happen um, if it's your first time. If you've been here more than once, I will ask you to do that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, we're not gonna do that. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is not about prescribing for us that how all Christians ought to be or how everyone in the church ought to be is they ought to go sell all their stuff and bring it to the church. You have to understand the context that we're dealing with here, okay? Understand who these people are and what they're dealing with. This is a relatively small, it's about 5,000 people, but in a big area, okay? Relatively small group of people who have just found out that the persecution has started. So these are followers of Christ, which at the time is a very small sect of religious people, and they're about to become a very persecuted sect of religious people. So they got to stick together, right? They've got to they help each other out in a way that, that we, for instance, probably don't have to deal with as much. But they had to because they were about to be persecuted. Not only that, but you've got a bunch of people who are probably still there who had become Christians on Pentecost. And remember, these people lived all over the Roman world, and they had come To Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they had become followers of Jesus, and and probably many of them had stayed. They had stayed there to learn what the apostles were teaching, to learn more about Jesus, and so as they're there, they're gonna run out of stuff eventually. They don't live in Jerusalem, so they had to be helped out. Thirdly, you have a group of people who believe that Jesus is gonna come back. They don't know when, but they believe he's gonna come back, and they also believe that Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. Because that had been prophesied, basically, that, the, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And so you've got to think of them as people with some inside information on future property values in Jerusalem, right? And so they might be thinking, hey, let's sell now before the Romans march in and destroy this place, right? So you have all these different things that are kind of coalescing or coming together to, be, to put them in a very specific situation where it made sense for them to sell their stuff and share it with each other, okay? That is not the situation for every church. It may become a situation that you're in someday, but it's not the situation for us right now as we sit. It was for them. And this was not a compulsory thing, by the way. There's no, there's no suggestion in the text anywhere that people were made to do this, that they did it because the apostles were saying, hey, you need to go sell all your stuff and bring it. It's clear that it was an act of love that was born out of the closeness that they had with one another. As they, as they became close, as they became one, this was something that flowed from that. So that's the deal with the Christian communism thing, or at least the part of it that we're gonna talk about right now. We'll get to it a little bit more later, okay? Um, so these people are becoming united, They're becoming one. Like I said, there's about, we know there's at least 5,000 of them, okay? There was 3,000 on Pentecost. We know there was another 2,000 at least that came together when Peter and John preached in the temple when the man was healed, because it tells us that the church was 5,000 at that moment, okay? So we know there's at least 5,000 of them, and this 5,000 people, they're starting to become a family. They're starting to become a family. It says that they were of one heart and soul, one heart and soul. And there's a lot, those are very pregnant terms because they have meaning, um, that's, that's beyond what I could probably do a whole sermon just on that, what it means to be of one heart and soul. But let's just suffice it to say, you're talking about an intimacy that goes beyond most relationships that anyone has on this earth. I mean, you're talking about very, very, very intimate relationships. They, they were sharing, essentially, almost sharing a will. They were there to do the will of God, and they were connected and, and loyal and committed to one another in a very, very serious way. That's what we see here. Okay. Remember that Jesus had prayed and he had actually asked for this specific thing to happen. He had asked specifically for the church to be this way. If we go to John chapter 17, we start in verse 20. Through 23, it says this. Now, Jesus was praying. He had been praying for his disciples prior to this. And then he says this. He says, I do not pray for these alone. That's his disciples that he'd been praying for. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the church here. Those who believed in Jesus through the word of the disciples, right? The apostles here. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may, may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So we see that this is exactly what Jesus wanted for the church, and we see that through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is exactly what's happening in the early church. And what does it say here will happen when the church becomes one? What does Jesus say will happen? It says that the world may believe that you sent me. And then it goes on to say, and have loved them as you have loved me. So what happens as these people become united, as they become one, as they have one heart and one soul, as they're together, what's happening is beyond what they're getting out of that, in other words, beyond the closeness that they're getting with each other, the closeness that they're getting with God, there's another thing happening. It's a witness to those outside the church that Jesus was sent from God. And it's a witness to those outside the church of the love of God. So we have this thing that he's basically saying, look, as my church, as those who come to believe in me become one, God, you will be glorified in that. I will be glorified in that. People will see the love that you have for them. Your grace will be able to be preached because these people are acting in this way. Because it's different. It's weird to act that way, right? To get all together, sell all your stuff, and, and, or, or, or just to be that intimate with one another, people that aren't in your own family and, and, and that type of thing, to have that kind of thing is strange. And people look at it and they say, what's going on? And apparently God's saying, look, as they do that, it's going to win a hearing for people to understand who I am. Now, what I want you to think about as we go through this is if that's what unity in the church does, if unity in the church puts people in a position to know who God is, to know that Jesus was sent by God, and to see the love of God, what does disunity do in the church? What does disunity do? If unity does one thing, disunity probably stands to reason does the other thing. So if unity says, okay, when I see a unified church, I want to know who Jesus is, and I believe that Jesus was sent of God, and I see God's love, then disunity is probably going to say, don't believe in Jesus. I don't like what I see. I don't see the love of God. So as we're going through this, and as you're thinking, as you're being called, as the Holy Spirit's pushing on your heart and calling you to the type of unity that we see here in the early church, I want you to think what it means if you you reject that, and you don't want to become unified. You don't want to be one with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So the church in Jerusalem would have been made up of literally people from all walks of life, okay? They were from all over the world. They were from all different socioeconomic classes, from all different kinds of jobs. You would have very, very rich people. You would have had very, very poor people. You would have had doctors and politicians. You would have had beggars, you would have had all everything in between. You would have had all these different people. And somehow all these different people became one in heart and soul. Now, I don't have a lot of experience outside of the context of church. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of experience inside the context of church with seeing a group of people become that close and become that unified. And the only place I think you'll ever see it is when the church is a church and is acting the way the church is supposed to act. Because it is a miraculous thing. It is a miraculous thing to see that kind of Christianity happen. And what we also see is we see something that a guy named Ray Stedman, an author, called counterfeit Christianity. And counterfeit Christianity, it can grow up right alongside real Christianity. Eventually, it can kind of swallow up real Christianity. But when he's talking about counterfeit Christianity, he's talking about a Christianity that sort of does the opposite of this everybody coming together and becoming one. Usually counterfeit Christianity looks something like everybody comes together as long as they're in the same socioeconomic class and they look the same and they sort of like the same things and whatever. And anybody who's kind of not one of those people, either explicitly or implicitly, is sort of encouraged not to be part of that group. It's Christianity as a club. Christianity as a club, right? People get together and they're, they go to church, but everybody at their church somehow miraculously looks just like them acts just like them, likes all the same stuff that they like, makes the same amount of money that they make. And they may do good things. They may give to the poor, so long as those poor people don't come to their church. They don't want that, right? But they may may do things. They may do religious things. But at the end of the day, they're not interested in what God's calling them to here in terms of becoming one with all those who love Christ. They want to insulate themselves with just those people who are like them. We have to be very careful as a church very careful as the church, that we don't become that way. Because that's easy, right? And it's natural in some ways for us to want to be around people who are like us, for us to want to hang out with people who are like us because we understand who they are, we understand what they're like. It's very unnatural, or at least it's very difficult to go out on on the edge and, and, and know people who are different than us and become intimate, truly one with people who are very, very different than us. That's a very difficult thing. That's why counterfeit Christianity is so common. And real, true Christianity, the kind we see here in Acts 4, is so difficult. But we all have to question ourselves. We all have to question ourselves about which one we're really doing sometimes. So, let's move on. One of the things that, that this counterfeit Christianity thing has done is it set a lot of people against the church. It set a lot of people against the church, and probably for good reason. Probably fair, right? Um, because people have used the church to get things for themselves, people have used the church for their own purposes, and what that 's done is it 's made people very wary of the church. I had a young man who, who I know who I saw some potential in to maybe even go into ministry someday, and I decided that I would spend some time um, kind of pouring into this young man and some of the other um, Christian folks that I knew sort of poured into this young man, helping him to become a man of God, helping him become to know what's good and helping him develop maybe some ministry skills and things like that. And this young man was pretty excited about this, and he called a cousin of his, and he said, hey, this is what's going on, and they're going to put this time into me and whatever. And his cousin's response to him was, dude, you're being played. These guys just want to get something from you. They're, just, they're after you for something you can give to them. Now, I have no idea what conceivably this young man could have given to me. It was me who was going to have to put all the time into him, right? But from his cousin's perspective, it's church people who are going to put this time into you. There must be a catch. There must be a catch. And that is what counterfeit Christianity has done. It's created an environment where many people look at the church and think, they're bad people. They're after something for themselves because so many people have done that. So many people have done that. So that's what happens. As I said, if unity causes one thing, disunity causes something else. And if doing church properly does one thing, doing church improperly does something else. And you've got to think about more than just how it's affecting you, but how the way that you act and the way that you live within the church affects other people. Affects those outside who are looking at you. Okay. This is one of the reasons, this unity idea, this idea of oneness, is one of the reasons that we push life groups, these small groups that I talked about at Acts Church. Okay? Life groups are, they're, they're a smaller group of people that get together during the week sometime and they eat a meal together, which is very biblical. It's, you, know, you eat together, you share that time together, it causes intimacy with one another. We also pray together, we find out what's going on in each other's lives, and we study scripture together. Uh, we, just, we just kind of live. Together, and that causes a certain kind of unity and camaraderie and oneness and closeness. It's very difficult to do in this environment. In this environment, you can come in here as an individual. Maybe you say hi to somebody. Maybe you don't. You come in and then you leave, and it's very difficult by just coming to church on a Sunday to gain that kind of intimacy. So we have these smaller groups. If, out of five thousand people. That would have been in the church at least at this time. I promise you, they were not all super close with one another. It was a feeling that's being described as the whole church, but the way that that was probably really happening was it describes earlier, we saw in the second chapter of Acts, it talked about going house to house. So they'd all meet together communally. All all of them, all 5,000 of them would meet together. They would also meet from house to house. And those house to house meetings is where that, that camaraderie, that oneness came together, that oneness that Jesus is praying for happens in those moments. And then as they come back and they're one with each other in these groups, then when they're with the big group, the big group becomes closer as well. And so that's what we see and so that's what we do. That's why we do that here at our church. We encourage that because it causes that oneness. We see the same thing modeled with Jesus. So we know that there were a lot of people who actually followed Jesus and a lot of people who actually had followed him pretty much his whole ministry. Not to mention the thousands upon thousands of people that he taught, but there were just 12 that he had that very, very intimate group with where where the real solid growth was happening at a much more accelerated rate was that smaller group. So we saw it modeled there, then we see it modeled in the early church, so that's why we do it. Because we want to create that kind of oneness, that kind of unity that only comes through being vulnerable, that only comes through knowing what's going on in other people's lives, that only comes from spending time together. Okay? So... Um, one of the things that, I'm going to go back to the Christian communism thing for just a second. One of the things that I've noticed people do sometimes is that they want to connect or marry Christianity and government in a weird way. So they use a passage like this to try to suggest that this is the way Government should work. Let me just say, Scripture doesn't say anything one way or the other here in this passage about whether government-based communism is the right thing to do or not, one way or the other. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about that at all. But we, as Christians, often um, we want to sort of co-opt our Christianity and government, and we end up with these sort of unholy unions of Christianity and a particular political party. Christianity and the way we look at government. We're a Christian nation. Heads up, not true. Never was true. Never was true. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. A Christian nation, a nation that would require everyone in it to be Christians, could never be a Christian nation because Christianity can never be compulsory. Can't happen. Can't happen that way. Jesus was not intending to create a nation. If he wanted to do that, he could have done it. He came to save us from our sin. Remember, he said, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my boys would have swords, right? We'd fight if that was the case, but you don't see me fighting because my kingdom's not of this world. Jesus wasn't coming to set up a political system. And when we allow ourselves to start to create some sort of America is Christian is America type system, we're we're walking down a dangerous road. Not to mention you might be want to be, be careful what you wish for because this has not always been a great place. We have not always done great things. So you want to tie the name of Christ to some of the things that this country has done? This is just a country. We live here. We love it. We protect it. All that's fine. All that's fine. I'm not saying don't be part of the political process. I'm not saying don't care about that. I'm not saying don't become a politician if that's what you're called to do. I'm saying don't marry Christianity and politics, especially don't try to say this party or that party is what's Christian. If I'm on this side, oh, they're the Christian ones Or on this side. They're the Christian ones. Look, neither of them are the Christian ones. It's a secular government that they're trying to run. That's what they're trying to do. It's not a Christian issue. Jesus did not try to make Christian nations. There's only one nation that has essentially the stamp of God on that. That's the nation of Israel. That's the only nation that's ever has been that way. And right now, you know, it is what it is. At some point, when Jesus comes back, it will once again be that way. But right now, America is not special in that way, okay? Now, don't get mad at me. I'm not against America. I love America, okay? I'm not saying anything about that. I don't even know what that means, I love America. I love you guys, right? Um, I, you know, I like Disneyland, Uh, I like baseball. There's a lot of things I like about America. I love it, okay? But my allegiance to my king is something much different than my allegiance to my country. Would I fight and die to protect each one of you? Of course I would. In that sense, do we love America? Yes. But don't connect them. Don't connect them. And as we advocate for things that we believe to be right, be very careful about waving one of these around in people's faces for a couple reasons, okay? Okay? Not everybody, this is going to come as a shocker, I know. Not everybody submits themselves to the authority of the Bible. Did you know this? There may have been a time when that was true. I don't think there ever was. But not everybody submits themselves to the authority of the Bible. And then when you take it and try to use it authoritatively on them, how do you think that people react to that? The same way you would react to it if they did try to do it to you with the Koran or some other such thing. That's not what God has called us to do. That's not, that's not the kind of thing that God has called us to do. You can advocate for what's right and wrong without even having to use this. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't use it. I'm not saying that what's in it's not true. Obviously, you know I believe that, or why would I be here? I believe that it is true. I believe that you should use it, right, but not as a club against people.
0: And you've been listening to Pastor David Robinson from Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington, here on Contemplate. I hope you'll check out part 2 of this teaching and learn more about this important topic of unity in the church. I also hope you'll come to Axe Church this Sunday and hear Pastor David in person. You'll really enjoy the family of folks here that love Jesus and each other, and you already know the teaching will be great, so come see us. Get easy directions anytime at axchurchnw.org or call 360 360- 8859000 Thanks again for listening to Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate